0: One thing that I've not encountered in wine that sake does extremely well is to print something that is uh, almost savory. Um, There's one that I have had uh, where it's an extremely unusual sake. It's aged for 17 years, which is almost unheard of uh, in this day and age. Uh, And as you can imagine, that bottle was priced appropriately for that. Um, But it was soy sauce, caramel, toasted mushrooms, and wood. And then in that same fridge next to it, I've got a bottle that when I opened it was like somebody had taken a Fuji apple and just crushed it directly into my mouth. And they're both made with the same rice from the same region of Japan with the same water.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me, whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. Okay, here we are. Same time, same channel, Decoding Cocktails. I'm Chris LeBeau. Today's episode, this is the one you didn't know you wanted that you definitely need. My guest today is Andrew Lamb. He is the owner of High Water Sake. Who is this guy? Andrew has a long history in the culinary food and beverage space, and yet during COVID is how he came to be the owner of this. He was sitting at home and always had had an affinity for Japan, especially when he was younger. But uh, Andrew says he had a bottle of sake lying around, also talks about going to uh, the wonderful St. Louis uh, uh, bar and restaurant, uh, Indo. And when he had sake, really for the first time, kind of in his grown-up years, was like, oh my God, I need to know everything about this, and so quickly now has become a certified sake sommelier and a certified educator through the Sake Sommelier sommelier Association. That's how you say that. Uh, So sake is something, uh, Andrew has a lovely term out there that I couldn't help but laugh at, called the American Hot Sake Experience, and what you really need to know about this term is really that just um, most of the sake that most of us, the average one of us, has experienced is either a low quality or even with a lot of the hot sake that is typically ordered at like a a happy hour or something. It is oftentimes even coming out of a machine. And this made me think about something I didn't say during the interview, which is I know one of the things that bars talk about a lot is that draft beer lines um, need to be cared for. Otherwise, bacteria and other things can help impact uh, the pull of a draft beer where it's just poorer quality. Andrew says this is very much often the case with sake that is being fed out of a machine. So anyways, today's discussion is really about the fact that this uh, long history of a product that is brewed like beer and drank like wine is often misunderstood by us, and we haven't had good quality stuff. Andrew also comes to this field with a lot of passion because uh, it's something that can be very intimidating, even if you're curious. Uh, The... Parts of the bottle might be written in Japanese um, or just frankly very difficult to pronounce and therefore intimidating. Uh, Andrew cites, in terms of what one of his goals is, uh, a line from a a sake bar in New York that he loves, which is something along the lines of, people need to drink more sake more irresponsibly. And while it doesn't mean you need to tie one on, what it means is, let's not make it a special occasion Let's try it. It's great. You know, Andrew's, one of his big pointers is, as you'll kind of come away from today's episode with, is as long as it's not coming um, from a large making uh, uh, brewery here in the U.S., as long as it's coming from a craft place uh, in the U.S. or in Japan, very likely you're going to get a high-quality sake that's very quickly going to open your eyes to why this is different than what you've probably experienced before. Uh, there was a really beautiful moment, uh, unintentionally during the interview when I asked Andrew about sake's relationship to Japanese culture. And he, he just looked at me and he said, you know, I think it's pretty much impossible to separate the two. Um, so this is a, was a wonderful conversation, uh, that we were able to sit down and do in person. Uh, uh, all this will be of course in the show notes, but, um, uh, Check out Andrew at HighWaterSake, S-A-K-E dot com, or on the Instagrams at HighWaterSake. Or you can, of course, give him a follow directly on Instagram. He is not the original, but the second D-O-double-G, so it is Lamb, L-A-M-B-D-O-double-G. So with that, uh, my conversation with Andrew Lamb. So, Andrew, I'm, I'm curious when we start out today, can you tell me and the, the folks at home are on the elliptical machine right now, uh, what, what is Little Rhino?
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, so that's an old, old thing that I used to do on my Instagram because when I was working at uh, Union Loafers, a, a cafe here in St. Louis, um, there was a rhinoceros toy that got left behind by one of our tables one day. And it jokingly got put into my hands. And so I started taking pictures to post in the bakery with it. And then I took it with me on a trip to Chicago. Uh, and my mother thought that I had put it on a painting in a museum there and then took a picture of it. And she was like, they're going to kick you out. They're going to kick you out. And I was like, no, 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 no. I didn't put it on the painting. I just was holding it next to the painting. Um and it just it turned into a long running gag for a while where I was uh, talking about little rhino as if it was something else while also talking about myself as if though I was the little rhino. Uh, but I, honestly, I think um, yeah, sitting on my computer at home on my like tower which is up on my desk next to my my computer, I've got the rhino just sitting there perched looking at me at all times when I'm working. So
1: <laughs> it's um, I I saw it hashtagged a number of times and so I was like you know what I'm like. Sometimes you just got to know a thing or two
0: right here. Uh, yeah. Uh, just a dumb just a dumb little bit that I did for a while to, you know, for myself, just a little joke.
1: I mean, if life isn't here for our own personal amusement, I don't know what the heck we're doing here, so.
0: Absolutely. It took me a second when you asked that. I was like, what is Little Rhino? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, it took me a second to get back to the context of what it was and how <laughs> you would know that in reference to me.
1: That's right. Yeah. Andrew and I have known each other for about eight minutes now, so it's going real well. Um... So, uh, I was curious, so you and I have a kind of similar arc in a little bit of a way that, uh, you know, we are both now kind of, uh, you know, in the, uh, distilling hospitality industry, you have a, a a longer history in it, I suppose, than I do working in all sorts of different gigs, but, uh, this sake exploration for you really began to take its deep dive during the pandemic, as I've read, uh. You had some sake apparently laying around at, at home. So, is that when you're fascin- did your fascination with Japan and Japanese culture begin prior to the pandemic, or did you just happen to have a bottle laying around and that catalyzed it for you?
0: So, I think it actually uh, my my interest in Japan started oh, when I was pretty young. Uh, you know, there used to be this um, this this like late-night Cartoon Network thing called Toonami. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I'm really uh, dating myself here. Um, But they used to show the English dubs of anime. And so there was just this whole, like, series of them, just old-school anime, the FLCL, the Yu Yu Hakusho. Like, I can't believe I remember their names still. But um, I just I kind of fell in love with the idea of Japan, which is not the reality of it, but the idea of it back then. And then as I grew older, I kind of had a few situations that kind of pushed me away from f- pursuing that interest. And then I got into cooking. And then years and years later down the line, when I was spending some time during the pandemic, uh, doing a little soul searching like many of us did, uh, I kind of fell into this idea of like, well, you know, let's pursue that childhood dream. Like, let, again, let, let's do something for me. Um, so I started to learn Japanese and I just so happened to uh, go out to dinner when everything started opening back up and we were allowed to and all that good stuff. Uh, I just so happened to go out to dinner at Indo um, and saw their sake menu and thought, you know what, I've never had a good experience with this, but I've never had a bad experience here at Indo, so I'll give it a shot. And, I mean, it was like falling off a cliff. Uh, there was no going back. I, it was a bottle of the uh, the Montense Crane. Uh, which is just a Junmai, just a classic Junmai, and I fell in love instantly. I uh, started looking stuff up online just kind of like as a fun, like, oh, maybe this will be a hobby thing for me to do just to kind of know a little bit about this. And um, from there, it turned into buying some books. From there, it turned into looking into certifications, to doing certifications, to becoming an educator, to taking another certification, so forth and so on. Uh, and here we are. And honestly, all of that happened pretty quick. That's about a year and a half to two-year time span that I'm talking about in there. So, uh, yeah, I kind of fell very much into the rabbit hole of things and never climbed back out.
1: So first off, a uh, shout-out to uh, Kira Webster and the team at Indo, soon to be Sado as well. Um, so starting at the beginning, because – Probably everybody listening out there is familiar with sake. They've they've, they've had it. They've been near it. Mm-hmm. But let's start at the beginning. What exactly is sake? Give us the high level on it.
0: Yeah, so sake is a brewed beverage made from rice, water, yeast, and something called koji. Koji is an inoculated rice mold. Uh, for the science nerds out there, it's aspergillus oryzae, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong because... Nobody's ever corrected me on it. But um, essentially, those four ingredients, and then sometimes they'll add in a brewer's alcohol, are used to brew something that can be incredibly delicate and lovely and delicious. We uh, we joke a lot in the industry that it's um, brewed like beer and drank like wine. You know, we've got this very robust brewing process that's incredibly unique, uh, but it does produce something that's like light and lovely and sippable, You don't want to crush it like you would a beer or shoot it like you would a shot because it's not a distilled alcohol. Uh, I think typically sake, well, I don't think, I know, typically sake lands in between the 14 to 20% range on ABV.
1: So uh, complex brewing process. So, you know, uh, just make sure we're always starting at the beginning. So in order to ferment something, you need some kind of uh, sugar that yeast wants to consume and then... I think I once heard uh, bartender Jeffrey Morgenthaler delicately put it as uh, yeast uh, eats sugar and it poops out uh, alcohol and carbon dioxide. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. That's that, that's 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 their science for the day. But so what makes this process uh, so intricate in the brewing cycle?
0: Yeah. Uh, so to emphasize kind of why it's unique, I'll actually do, and to anybody that's into wine or beer listening to this, you know, forgive me, this is a very blatant shortcoming of this explanation. But, uh, you know, with with wine, it's very simple and straightforward. We've got grapes, which have a high natural amount of sugar in the process. Uh, We'll smash that. We'll chuck some yeast into it. And then next thing you know, we've got wine. Obviously, that's, you know, pretty reductive of that. But same thing kind of goes for beer. With beer, we've got these malts, these grains. And what we can do is a process called germination or in the brewing process called malting. And what you're doing is you're tricking the grain into thinking it's springtime. So what it's doing is it's taking that germ and it's telling it, hey, convert that into sugar so that we can, you know, grow. Uh, And from there, uh, you know, we're yanking it out, dumping it in a different tank, putting yeast in it, beer's made. Again, very reductive. However, with sake, the rice that we're brewing with, our primary kind of grain situation, we're not throwing in wholesale from the field. Uh, The rice goes through a polishing process, whether that's, you know, typically, sake is going to land somewhere between 70 to below 50% polishing ratio. And what I mean by that is that that's the percentage left after polishing. So if you have a 70% polishing ratio, they've taken 30% of the grain off. And that's a very slow and long process that we can chat about in a moment. But the important thing to know is that we no longer have that germ on the rice. So if we were to cook that and throw it into a tank with yeast, the yeast doesn't have anything to eat on. It needs that sugar, right, to, to poop out the alcohol, as we've discussed. So... What needs to happen is we need to have a second microbiome, uh, a a microbe, a microbe. I don't know why I said whatever that other word was. Uh, We need to have a second microbe in there doing the work to convert starch into sugar. And that's what koji does. That mold gets into the rice. It eats all that starch up and it releases sugar as a byproduct. And at the same time that that's happening during the process, Uh, the yeast is eating that sugar and converting it into alcohol. It's called multiple parallel fermentation. It's the only alcohol in the world brewed this way. Hmm. Um, Fully unique, fully uh, something that just kind of came about by happenstance just due to the the koji being a natural mold that occurs in Japanese wood. Uh, And here we are today, thousands of, you know, a thousand years later at least, uh, making truly incredible products. But it is unique in that way.
1: So to make sure, so Andrew, we take a piece of rice and we want to polish it down. Is that essentially like when we talk about like the germ or terms that I remember from biology, but couldn't define. So are we polishing it down so that it makes it easier for the koji to then convert the remaining starch to sugar? Or is like what's on the outside just uh, undesirable? So in terms of we're polishing it down to get rid of gross stuff to get rid of, to make so we can get to the, the sugars in the middle. Walk me through that part right there.
0: Yeah. So it's actually really interesting too, because there's there's kind of, um, there's broad categories of rice, but there's, as far as we're concerned for sake, there's two different categories of rice. There's table rice, which is what we're used to eating. Uh, these grains are very well balanced. They've got starch, proteins, fats all throughout. So it gives you a really nice bite. Everything is really lovely and in balance. And then there's sakamai or sake specific rice strains. Um, Sake rice is not in balance for eating. What's happening with sake rice is that an ideal grain has a kind of core called the shimpaku or the starch heart. And what we want when we're polishing is to get as close to that as possible, Mm. depending on the style. Obviously, we want some of them to have a little bit more. And the reason for that is because in brewing, those proteins, those fats, those lipids that are located kind of on the further outside of that rice when the starch is fully concentrated in the middle – can lead to more umami, kind of oily, savory flavors. Uh, So if you're aiming for a very light, fruity, like ginjo, having more of that on there means that you're going to have a harder time getting to those light, lovely, fruity aromatics. However, if you're making something like a honjozo, uh, which we'll be tasting a little bit later today, those aren't necessarily bad things because they're going to give you some qualities that you want. Um, There's also some really interesting developments in rice polishing recently that I'm by no means an expert on, but it's changing the way that we polish rice in such a way that we can achieve a more fruity sake with a lower polished rice. Okay. Um, But again, that's like in the last couple years. And I think as far as I'm aware, there's only like two or three breweries really actively pursuing that particular part. So, uh, it's a fun little rabbit hole to dive into, uh, well worth looking into if you're interested in that. That's uh, Fukucho uh, from Imara Shuzo. Um, I believe that Imara-san is working with the the technology for that.
1: So as a uh, happens in every podcast episode, uh, we will certainly have uh, all sorts of links and show notes that I will no doubt be chasing Andrew down for because I'm sure that uh, as I attempt to uh, type some of these things into browsers, I will... Uh, Fail epically, but that will be okay. We will get that all straightened out so that you guys can follow along with various links and not um, part of with my love for rum. We have um, the idea that I feel like a lot of people are like oh their rum experiences Malibu or Captain Morgan or whatever. And for a number of folks out there listening, you know, even if it hasn't been for I don't know fifteen or twenty years or whatever, you know, I feel like the layperson listening. That their experience with sake has probably either been, "Oh, they were out for sushi, and like someone had it on a happy hour special uh or heaven forbid uh late night i'm they were uh having uh sake bombs uh tell us about when we're likely drinking sake on Happy hour or God forbid we've been sucked into the sake bomb like wormhole I don't know maybe there's maybe there's a dignified way to do them um. Tell us about what people probably have experienced when they're drinking on the lower end of sake.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the lower end of sake is uh in Japan it would be called something uh called futsushu. Futsu means regular, shu means alcohol. Um and the reason that that's important is because most of the premium stuff that uh people like me end up talking about a lot um is actually legally a different category of sake. So uh, it's also worth noting that sake is the Japanese word for alcohol. So in Japan, it's called something very different. If you ask for sake, you might get a beer, you might get a shot of whiskey, or you might get sake. Um, but in America, uh, it's what I refer to as the hot sake, the American hot sake experience. Uh, typically, what you're getting is something that has been brewed here in the States using pretty lax rules. Uh, to my knowledge, there's no federal law or language around uh, Nihonshu or Seishu, which is what sake is called in Japan, which means that the the breweries here in America can make pretty much whatever they want to make so long as it kind of falls within the category of sake. Now I'm I'm not saying that they are, you know, pouring straight ethanol with some sugar into a bottle, um but I also don't know what's in that bottle. Uh and you know, to be clear, these are I don't know if maybe we'll cut this part out, but these are brands like Ozeki, geki Shochiku Shochikubai. There's a place for them. I don't want them to go away, but I wouldn't drink them. They exist right. for a reason. right? Um, and so typically when you're getting that, when you order just like a hot sake at a restaurant, you're getting it out of a machine that has a big kind of bladder box full of the cheap stuff that comes from one of these breweries. Uh, and then another thing that, I think people don't want to acknowledge, but I fully will say it. Uh, those machines are hard to clean, and most people don't clean them right ever, uh, and that's nasty. And so you're getting something that is not a great product to start with, and then you're getting it that's been pushed through a machine that likely has mold growing on the inside and has bacteria and other nasty stuff, and it's getting heated up. So you're drinking hot, moldy alcohol, uh the, say more. Say more. Yeah, and it's usually a little too hot. So you end up getting what most people identify for sake being this like hot, sticky, sweet, burny, boozy liquid, and they think that's not for me. Right. Um which yeah, me neither. <laughs> you know, like I don't I don't want to drink that either. Um there's some really great stuff out there, and one of my one of my true delights is getting to kind of break that first sip barrier on somebody that's only ever had the hot sake experience. Um, And, and again, I want to, sorry to to dogleg here, but hot sake is delightful. It can be truly lovely. It's specifically what I'm calling the American hot sake experience that I'm referring to here. Um, But when you get to have somebody have that first sip of something that is carefully made by somebody that loves what they're doing and has a lot of care and practice and tradition built behind what they're doing. You really get to see people kind of light up and go, Oh my God, that's good. Uh, and it it really is one of the greatest moments in, in my kind of day to day life is getting to pour that, that little sip and getting that experience. Uh, are you, have you had that experience yet? So, yeah, actually, um,
1: probably here and there, but what resonates most with me is I remember it was about June of last year. Uh, my brother lives out in Denver, Colorado. And, uh, I went out to a little uh joint for happy hour and um they had a, a whole array of it and our server was super excited and enthusiastic and uh we definitely had like a nice flight come out and it was yeah it was it was delightful and certainly one of those moments where I'm sure my mind was open to it before then but I was like oh yeah this is freaking great so, and for me, you know, using the thing like in this here blows my sponsorship chance with Bacardi, but like giving somebody a chance to have a, um, a daiquiri crafted with something like a plantation rum compared to Bacardi, it's like Bacardi is designed and they to your point about Khan and some of these other brands, Bacardi has a time and a place it's designed to compete with vodka in the rum category. But when somebody has a plantation three stars, they go holy shit, like this is super flavorful. What don't I know about rum? And the answer is probably a lot. And so I think seeing people's brain kick on in that way is always, um, it's a pretty interesting, special moment, I would say.
0: I, um, it is funny that we keep talking about rum a little bit too, because it really kind of, I think, uh, rum was one of my first lead-ins to thinking about alcohol as more than just a means to get drunk. Um, and so it is, it is funny that you talk about having this kind of relationship with it because I remember my first time that somebody gave me a bottle of, uh, of like, uh, I think it was a Florida Kana, mm-hmm. Um, and you know, up until that point i had had like Kraken and you know, the, you know, the, the plastic bottle stuff. And I remember being like, wow, this isn't spiced or sweet. This is crap. And then drinking it again over ice. And then, you know, like just repeatedly just cause I was like, well, I'm not going to not drink this bottle. Right. And just by the end of it, I was like, I don't know what I'm tasting or what I'm getting, but I do get, I get it. I just don't know what I get. And I think that a lot of people have that same reaction to a lot of things. Um, you know, with wine, we're all kind of a little bit desensitized to it because we're so used to seeing wine lists and hearing French words or Italian words or German words surrounding wine. Um, and to some extent, beer too. I mean... Most people fundamentally understand what a lager is without you having to explain, you know, like, oh, well, it's a cold fermentation where the yeast sits at this particular part of the tank. You know, I bet most people couldn't even tell you that. And saying that out loud, I actually refrained from saying where the yeast was because I don't remember. Sure. So I think... Um, I don't remember where I started with this, so I apologize about that. Oh, talking about kind of the... The thing is, is that it can be really scary on a menu when you're looking at a whole kind of beverage list and you see you know you've got your your beers that you're familiar with you know what a stout is you know what a porter you know the lager the ale and then the next category is going to be your cocktails and you know what a gin and tonic is going to taste like and then you see your wine list and you know you've got that super buttery california chardonnay and that super light and mineral dry kind of italian white And then you get down to the bottom and you see a page that says things like Tokubetsu Junmai made with Gyohyaku Mangoku rice from Niigata Prefecture. You're like, what does that mean? Right. Um, And a lot of places, you know, I think um, I I am excited that you, you got to have that experience in Denver where you had somebody that was excited to guide you through the category. but. A lot of people don't know what they're selling and it's something that the owner either thinks that they should have or that they want, but they don't go through the effort of, uh, you know, educating their staff. And again, this is not me kind of trying to to down on anybody, but um, it really takes a lot of work to get people through that, that door and to get them to accept it. And then once they do, they really enjoy it and it's still hard to keep them there because they can't pronounce the words and it's stressful to sit in a restaurant and look at somebody that you know knows the actual word and to try to say it to them um and so my my main goal with all of this is to try to make it approachable and fun and easy um there's this great bar in new york called accidental bar shout out to those guys doing fantastic work uh and one of my favorite things about this place is up on the wall they've got this like chalkboard that has quotes written on it and um The quote that I love the most off of it is the owner saying, I want more people to drink more sake more irresponsibly. And he's not saying I want people to get like fucked up every day. He's saying I want it to be a household beverage. I want it to be something where you're sitting at home. You're like, "Ooh, I want a little drink. It's the end of the day. You want to reach for something we want that to be something where you're thinking about sake on the same level that you are a beer or a wine, where it's something where you're comfortable reaching into your fridge, popping out and just pouring yourself a glass and sitting on the couch. Um, and I think we can get there. I don't I, remember I, where that started. No, I apologize.
1: No, no, no don't do no apologize. I like that because while unlike beer, wine and, uh, sake, I tend to sometimes talk about, um, uh, cocktails this way and it's like listen like a simple cocktail costs you a couple bucks to make and the reality is is like stop thinking if you when things are special too special they're coveted and reserved for special situations and i'm like listen you need a delicious ordinary cocktail all the time and it's affordable enough that you can afford to mess it up
0: to that point too i think that uh, you know you, you mentioned that uh, most people have kind of uh, those two experiences of the the sake bomb or the uh, the cock, you know, the the happy hour. But I think too, another experience that I find that I hear a lot is the,, um, we went to uh, Japan and we had this really great meal, and we had this delicious sake over there. And the problem with that is one, I'm jealous of it. And two, it becomes enshrined in this like memory, in this perfect point in time and they're unwilling to risk that memory. And I'm here to tell you that you can have that experience here in the States just as easily, both domestic and foreign sake that comes in. Typically, um, typically you're going to find that places that have a large sake menu that know what they're talking about are huge nerds, and they're taking very good care of the product. And as a result, it's going to be just as good as something you had over there.
1: I think, um, to your point, yeah, like, travel these life-changing experiences these romantic settings are lovely but you are right that we oh i had this cocktail you know to my little world at this bar in New York or Italy and you could never have that anywhere else and it's like no that's actually probably not true you know that like you know so much of it is the moment and the memory and that's great don't let don't don't take that away from yourself but objectively you can still have a pretty darn good cocktail away from that place and and don't lose the magic of that world in Japan that you captured there. But there's a way that you can uh, – so uh, th- there's also a way uh, – remember, another rum line uh, recently spoke with um, uh, rum ambassador Adrian Stoner from Plantation. You know, shout out to them again. But anyways, but she talked about how transportive she feels rum is. And so if anything, to someone out there who had that experience in Japan, allow that sake to take you back there. In a very small way, too.
0: Absolutely, and kind of to add to that, the idea of like the cocktail that's very easy, sake is also a, a. There's a big push to acknowledge sake as a cocktail ingredient, and that's a that's a kind of a big thing in Japan, and it's definitely a big thing here. And I think it's it makes it a lot more approachable for people too. Um, you know, our our common touch point, Kira Webster, uh, who's a genius. Um, she made this this Corpse survivor, where she used this super savory kind of uh, funky little aged sake as the base. And then instead of doing an absence spritz over the top, she did this like ginger shochu spritz over the top. And it was probably my favorite version of that drink that I've ever had. Uh, and, you know, I'm biased towards it because of the sake going on in there. But of course, uh, and, you know, of course, Kira made it. So it's the best version of that possible thing. <laughs> But truly, there's there's really, I would encourage people to explore it and to to not be afraid of it. Um, and, you know, if you see Made in the USA on the bottle and it's not a craft brewery, just don't pick that bottle up and you're probably going to have a good time with whatever you end up picking up.
1: Yeah, so to that point where maybe it's useful to go now, because, you know, it's interesting, Andrew, I think we can look at rice and we see this seemingly ordinary boring in our mind commodity grain or whatever but in terms of the spectrum of flavors that we can encounter i mean i'm sure it's i'm supposed to ask what there's like a sweetness scale smv or something like that yeah
0: the sake meter value
1: yeah but i'd be interested right now if you wouldn't mind talking about kind of the spectrum of flavor that we might encounter in sake and of course this spectrum of dryness to sweetness because i think for many people it's just like you know, trying to even begin to think about it like a wine or a beer. It's like, oh, but those come from fancy grapes, and that's different. So so talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so to some extent, that's definitely uh, a consideration. The rice is, of course, very important, um, as is the water, as is the yeast, as is the koji. But one of the things that we talk about, too, when we're, we're teaching people kind of how to think about sake is that, in beer, a lot of the flavor is going to come from your grains and your hops. They kind of are the the driving factor of where your flavor is going to be. Obviously, the brewer has a lot of choice in any alcohol. Uh, same for any distiller. You have a lot of choices to make. Uh, you know, with, with wine, you're never going to make a Pinot Noir grape taste like a super buttery Chardonnay. And I cannot wait for somebody to come and be like, no, and show me that I'm wrong. Um, but in sake... There's really so many choices to be made in the process. They say that there's 10,000 choices. It's this idea of ban ryu, it's called, um, that the brewer makes during the process. And the flavor exists in those choices. So when we're talking flavors of sake, uh, one thing to keep in mind is that sake has about five times less things like citric acid or those really punchy acids that wine does, but it does have significantly more, up to 10 times more amino Uh, and like umami acids going on in there Um, so you're still able to get a huge range but we're not looking at the difference between like a super jammy tannic red to a super fruity dry mineral driven white we're looking more at the difference between levels of fruit we're looking at different is it tropical fruit does it have apple are we looking at white fruit are we looking at kind of Soft, subtle notes of cereal grains. Are we looking at soy sauce, mushroom? One thing that I've not encountered in wine that sake does extremely well is to print something that is uh, almost savory. Um, There's one that I have had uh, where it's an extremely unusual sake. It's aged for 17 years, which is almost unheard of uh, in this day and age. Uh, And as you can imagine, that bottle was priced appropriately for that. Um, But it was soy sauce caramel toasted mushrooms and wood. And then in that same fridge next to it, I've got a bottle that when I opened it was like somebody had taken a Fuji apple and just crushed it directly into my mouth. And they're both made with the same rice from the same region of Japan with the same water. And it's all in the choices that the brewers made to get this super funky aged guy and this super light floral fruity guy. Um, Rice definitely has a huge play in that. There's over 120 varieties of sake-specific rice strains, and then sake can be brewed with table rice as well. So we're not limited to only those strains. However, if we look at some of the the kind of most common strains, things like Yamada Nishiki, uh, which is referred to as the king of sake rice, Yamada Nishiki is very well known for its uh, light floral fruity qualities. Uh, A lot of this is obviously dependent on the koji and the yeast used, but... Typically, when you see Yamada Nishiki and it's a ginjo, um, you kind of have some idea of what to expect going into it. Um, If you see something that says omachi, omachi uh, is a kind of a, actually, it's the only naturally occurring like wild rice strain that is in sake. Everything else has been kind of developed to have certain favorable qualities. But omachi has more of this like round, rustic and earthy flavor to it. Uh, and it's actually got a huge cult following. They call themselves the Omachists, which is one of my favorite sake rice facts. Um, and then, you know, we can go even further. So there's specific strains from specific uh, parts of the country. Uh, Deo Sansan San is known for its extremely light and floral flavor. Uh Goku is known for being a heartier, sturdier grain. And it goes on and on and on. I could spend, you know, a while trying to struggle to remember all of my rice grains off the top of my head and just say a bunch of Japanese words that people don't know, but that's, it really does come down to that. Like there's so many different tools for us to pull when we're brewing sake that you really get this really fun difference. And some of it isn't in the rice. Some of it is in the water. Some of it is in the yeast choice. Uh, There's this yeast out there called cell 24, uh, Cell 24 has the highest concentration of uh, isoamyl acetate, which is the uh, ester or aroma of apple. So it's just this incredibly apply, almost unbearably apply glass of sake. It's almost overwhelming, and it like kind of destroys your palate for everything following it. Um, and then there are uh, strains of yeast that... Uh, down in Kochi Prefecture, which is way down in the south of Japan, they've sent these strains of yeast out to space and then brought them down to see what the radiation would do to them. Uh, I've not had those because it's an extremely limited run and those sell out instantly, but it's really fascinating what's out there. Um, So all of these things kind of come together. And then we've got to think, too, uh, the water situation in Japan is very varied. Uh, Water in one part of a town, even, there's this uh, this brewing neighborhood in the, the Gogo region, which is in Hyogo. Um, and there's a whole bunch of breweries all on the same street. And if you test the water at the top of the street and test the water at the end of the street, you'll have different mineral breakdowns because it's run through that pipe to get all the way down there. So when you're talking about like, well, how does the hardness of water affect sake? It's extremely important. And so a brewery that could use the same exact rice, the exact same exact brewing method, even the same exact brewer could make brewery at these two different breweries that are a mile and a half away from each other. Mm-hmm. And you'll have two very different sakes because the water affected it or the microclimate of the space affected it. Right. And so that's kind of when a lot we talk about the skill of the toji or the skill of the brewmaster because it is so important to the flavor of sake. Um, and I've completely gone off the... The point of this, which is to kind of talk about the the flavors in sake, typically we expect to see things like honeydew melon, banana, apple, tropical fruits are very common. Uh, we see a lot of like cereal grains. So like if you've ever uh, popped your head over the rice cooker, when you pop it open and get that big old cloud of steam, that kind of slightly sweet, toasty grain smell, that's a very common flavor as well. That rice, uh, mushrooms, soy sauce on the funkier side of things caramel, kind of burnt honey. All of these are experiences that I've had. Sometimes you get like kumquat, peach. So it's a really fun category. The one that we're tasting today, I get this like um, salted melon out of. Um, I actually have two, but the one one that's a fresh bottle for us to taste from today is big like summer beach vibes to me.
1: Wow. For the record, that's the first time anybody said uh, isoamyl acetate on this podcast, I think. But uh, that was, uh, assuming I even...
0: No, so, you you nailed it. And now I'm actually going to quickly double check because I there's another one too. Um, uh, that is like the banana ester.
1: Andrew came prepared with all of his books and everything. It's it's great. Um, I've
0: got quite a few.
1: So, where I let's see, what was I? Yeah. And so first, as I kind of recollect my thoughts here, uh, I think it's um, you know, for people out there listening and you haven't heard. You know, you haven't experienced sake with some of these flavors that Andrew's rattling off. It's a great, you know, call to like, okay, maybe it's time for us to go back and give sake a look. And so we will certainly obviously today and in the show notes have a couple of brands and good places to start. I've also seen him talk before. Obviously, you know, much like with a lot of things, you know, going to the right uh, retailer is the useful thing too of like, you know, what people want to know in those situations. Like in a restaurant is, sure, you want – the perfect thing but what you really want to know is like I want to make a decision that I'm not going to like regret right like I don't want to look like an idiot and like get me something that's going to be interesting because you know you you've got your place you like to go with all your your whiskey or rum drinking friends beer drinking friends and you roll in with a bottle of sake feeling confident to say hey this is going to be interesting that's um it's a pretty powerful thing right there I'd say.
0: Yeah, and so I think uh, on that note of like a retailer, um, I think you'll have some luck looking into uh, local wine stores. I find that the natural wine crowd is very into sake. Beer guys also tend to get it pretty quickly as well because it is a very interesting and you can see a lot of parallel kind of um, parallel vibes. Uh, if you have the luxury of living in a place like New York, you can always go to uh, Binbin Sake or Kureichi Ichi. Uh, if you live in California you know you've got basically the whole world in your hand you've got true sake uh, up in Portland my my good friend uh, Nina Murphy uh, and her shop sunflower sake uh, she's doing incredible work up there shout out to Nina Murphy um, but you know for for those of us kind of everywhere else in the country I find that it, it can be a little bit challenging and a lot of times what you'll see on online forums uh, like the the sake reddit page you'll see a lot a common post there somebody's just taking a bunch of pictures of a liquor store shelf and they're like which one should i get right um right because there's not much guidance and so one thing that i would encourage people to do is uh there's great online retailers true uh uh true sake out of california they do online retailing um there's a website called tipsy t-i-p-p-s-y dot com Uh, I'm not an affiliate or anything. I just like what they do and I do write for them. But um, they have got truly probably one of the most comprehensive beginner guides and definitely the most comprehensive way to search for sake. So if you kind of are like, I don't know what I like, uh, I have no idea what to get at the shelf and you go, oh, wait, I've had that one before. I'll look it up on Tipsy real quick. Oh, it says that it's a light and dry category. Well, let's quickly look at the other light and dry category and see if these bottles make sense. Mm -hmm. Or just order from them. I mean, they do great work as well. So there's definitely resources out there. And I think it's just like, uh, you know, if I were to walk into a wine store, I wouldn't really know what to pick up because there's so many choices. It's the same situation. You're probably going to pull your phone out or you're probably going to grab somebody and ask them. And if the store person doesn't know, which... They probably don't. Don't be afraid to go to the internet. There's tons of resources, and there's tons of people like me who want to tell you what's good and what you should enjoy and what to avoid.
1: Yeah, and you hit on this earlier when we were talking about, uh, sorry, there goes our GeekCon sponsorship. But uh, So uh, when people are in the store, Andrew, and we said, like, hey, there's obviously a time and place for everything. Like, there's a market for Milwaukee's best beer and it's just not with me. Um but did you say that there are certain words or directional musings people should kind of look out for like if like okay let me make sure other than price point, right? You see sake and it's like two ninety nine or whatever the heck, it's probably not an indication of quality, but anything you would be looking for on a label or missing from a label that helps you know like probably not the best investment of my money.
0: I think that can be challenging to do okay. just because while I, I, I'll say this, I have yet to meet a uh, a label on a bottle from Japan that I haven't thought was pure artwork because they really do put a lot of care and effort into it. So if it's an ugly bottle, I guess maybe that's a, an indicator. But um, if you spin that bottle around and try to look at the back label and you see the words made in the USA and it's not from a craft brewery, um, you're probably going to have something that's not going to be super pleasant as far as price point goes as well. I have found that a lot of times, you know, if we're looking at the 300 milliliter, which is the smaller bottles that you'll see in stores, those typically, if you're somewhere in that kind of 12 to $20 range, you're probably getting something pretty decent. Okay. Um, that's, that may not always be true depending on pricing and regional stuff like that. In the larger bottle size, I find that a, a retail range of kind of that 25 to 45, you're going to be landing with some pretty pretty nice stuff. I think the one uh, that I have today, retail wise sits somewhere in that 28 to 35 range. okay um, That said, obviously, we can get pretty crazy out there. Uh, there's a bottle that comes here into St. Louis that I've yet to see in a store, but if you were at a retail price, it would probably sit around200 dollars, okay. And there's reasons for that. There's, you know, it's not just... uh, That's another great thing too that I I like to mention when I'm talking about pricing for sake. Sake is not reliant on some tradition or you knowing the brewery to price their product. They're pricing their product based on the labor, the materials, the effort of shipping it to the states, the effort of storing it. Um, It's not going to be like uh, a Dom Perignon where... Sure, you're paying for quality, but you're also paying because that's a bottle of Dom Perignon. Right. Um, you know, you they they understand that they don't have that kind of push here in the States. And there, there are bottles that have that situation. Um, you know, you'll see the Desai 23, and that's a very expensive bottle. But it is also a 23% polishing ratio, which means that before even getting to the brewing process, before any of the loss that's involved with straining or filtering or anything else... They have thrown away uh, 70, well, gosh, math, 23, 77% of the grain is gone before they're even starting. Right. So when you think about that, they need almost quadruple the amount of rice to make the same size batch. So that's why that bottle's more expensive. And that's pretty standard across the thing. You're going to see things that have lower polishing ratios are a little bit more expensive. Um, sometimes things with higher polishing ratios are also expensive and there's typically reasons they're either using a more boutique rice or it's being refrigerated from, you know, brewery to bottle shelf, uh, things that are fully unpasteurized are going to be a little bit more expensive because it's a lot harder to move those around and make sure that they stay shelf stable. Um, and then you've got to think too, uh, I've been talking about sake rice as though it's this huge thing, but really there's a very limited amount grown every year and breweries want to get at it. And so you get into these situations where there there's specific fields in Japan uh, behind the, the Roko mountain range down in the south um, called the, the Toku-e, Toku-e Yamada Nishiki fields. And if I were to open up a brewery here and produce something truly amazing in my first brew and then go to those guys and be like, great, now I'll buy your rice. They'd be like, get the hell out of here because they've already got contracts with all these breweries. They don't have a relationship with me. So a lot of times too, these, the rice is coming from farmers that have long standing relationships with these breweries. And unlike wine, uh, there was a law a while back, and I don't remember the exact dates that it was put in place or taken away, but there was a time where brewers were not allowed to brew their own rice. You had to purchase it from a farmer. And then, you know, we start getting into kind of the the uh, socio-political economic side of Japan here, where you're looking at sake as a modern industry has changed very dramatically since the 60s. In the 60s, they couldn't make the kind of sake that they can make today by law. Uh, It had to be fortified to a certain percentage. You couldn't use certain rice. You couldn't. You know, if it, if it could be a table eating rice, uh, you typically weren't using that for sake because they needed it for food during the war. So things really started to change around the 80s. And so I think of it as this really interesting juxtaposition of having this thousand-year tradition of brewing with about 80 years of real innovative work that have changed it. And that, again, this is not to say that There isn't other things that go into it. There's a huge history of all of the developments and it's super fascinating. But I don't even remember where I started on this train again. I do this all the time.
1: You know what? You're welcome to my world. So I I think, you know, in a way I'm also interested in, um, you know, when you talk about sake being this, you know, thing of uh, 10,000 decisions, I think about, you know, so much of, Japanese culture being so intricate and nuanced so are there ways and I don't know if this is easy to summarize or if it's even a good question but are there ways in which in your mind that sake is a good representation of Japanese culture how would you think about that question
0: I think it's impossible to separate sake and Japanese culture I think that those two are so intricately bound up together that if you were to try to look at Japanese culture as a whole and present it to somebody that didn't know anything about Japan and you didn't mention sake, you would be missing out on a section of what they're doing. So to give an example for that, sake is historically used in uh, Shinto ceremonies. Shinto uh, is kind of the the reverence of the natural world, spirits and everything, and kind of a, a thoughtfulness about it. But they'll pour out little cups of sake and put it on these shrines to these spirits as a way to honor them and to kind of ask for their favor. In weddings, there's a ceremony called sans-san san kudo. It's an incredibly traditional Japanese wedding ceremony. And essentially what they do is they've got these three cups, these three very small cups that you kind of super shallow and wide. You have to hold it with both hands so you don't spill it. And what they'll do is they'll pour a little bit of sake into the smallest cup The bride will take three sips, hand it to the husband, the husband will take three sips, and then they do it again for each of the three cups. It means three, three, three times. Um, And so it's just this kind of wrapped up thing. Uh, You know, you can look at almost any aspect of Japanese culture and find some way in which sake has touched or influenced it. Uh, If you're a Japanese salaryman, you're going on nomikais, which are drinking parties after work with your colleagues, or you're drinking beer and then sake. Well, that's a way to break down those cultural walls between your higher-ups and you, so that you can actually talk to your boss, and they can talk to you without breaking the social contract. Uh, There's a history where you look at why uh, Buddhism fell in Japan. You know, there used to be these huge Buddhist, like, warrior-monk temples. Well... They paid for the way that they lived by brewing sake, and the Japanese government didn't love that they had these massive economic military powerhouses, so they took away sake brewing. And then the money dried up a little bit. It became less lucrative to become a monk, and we see sake breweries spread across the country in that way. Hmm. I think at one point there was something like 13,000 breweries in Japan. And that ranged from people who were making a barrel a year in their back shed to barrel breweries that are producing massive quantities. So it's it's way down now. I think it, it's actually even more than that because it, it was, it's 1,300 brewing licenses issued now. And I think it was something like 100 times that. It was insane. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. But... That decline does not mean that there's less sake. It means that there's less bad sake mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. or less just random people who just so happened to have a friend who got them a license so that they could make their hooch in the backyard.
1: Right. Uh, so maybe this could actually be an interesting time um, for our tasting that we want to do today, um, being that um, you have achieved your, uh, and we're, we're breaking bottles out now. So you're going to hear uh, things clanking around and, that's okay. It's it's fine. This is a podcast with two humans. Um so but so you decided amongst all of this right here this kind of diving into stuff during COVID, during the pandemic in particular to kind of really jump in uh you know full bore with this. So uh and in any order and like don't let yourself get lost here but um so I'd love to hear about the Saki uh some of the certification you've received what that entails and turn on turn on your som hat now i'm just
0: yeah. i'm i'm here i love to but first a little pouring some that's right we love that they do that on almost every sake podcast i listen to well one more time why not what a thrilling sound that's right oh man it's too bad you're not here right You should also take a look at this. I find that the closures on sake bottles are really fascinating. Um, They've got, instead of this cork, they'll do this like plastic topper with Mm. a foil cap uh, because we we don't need to keep oxygen out. uh, And we can talk a little bit later on about the sturdiness of sake, but it's just a totally unique little capper that goes on the bottles here. Mm. Uh, So just that you all know that uh, what we're tasting while I talk about this, uh, we are sipping on the Tensei Infinite Summer. Uh, this is a, uh, sake out of Kanagawa prefecture made with gohyaku rice. It's a tokubetsu honjozo. It's a lot of Japanese words. Uh, tokubetsu means special process. Honjozo means alcohol added. So this rice has been polished down to probably a little bit lower based on the, the tokubetsu. That special process is going to be a lower polishing ratio. Uh, I don't have that to hand right now, um, but it's a lower polishing ratio, and then Honjozo means that there's a little bit of brewer's alcohol added here to really smooth, round, and make things out a little bit softer. Uh, this one's going to be a little bit more on the uh, kind of drier side as well. Okay. Beautiful nose. Get a little apple off the nose there. A little saltiness to mm-hmm. it. hmm
1: Oh, yeah. Nice.
0: Delicious.
1: Li- yep. nice little... Fruit note right there, and yeah, like I mean, with, with some of the ways you were talking about it, and I, I feel because like I feel like I've seen sake, and obviously there's a broad spectrum of it, but I feel like I've seen some um, sake listed at times in like martini specs and whatnot, and sometimes when you're talking about kind of like you know salty dryness or whatever, um, and especially as we talk about it being fortified a little bit too. And, I mean, you said it's usually the proving is 14 to 20%. Is that what you said, typically?
0: Yeah, typically speaking. It's going to fall a little bit higher than wine because of that process in the brewing. Um, but it can't go above, I believe, 20% is the legal cutoff to be sake.
1: Okay, okay, got it. Um, so, yeah, in terms of sturdiness, let's why don't we get that out of the way? Right. So I, I yeah. So I go out and I buy a bottle of sake. Once, I, you know, maybe it's shitting— S- sitting on my uh, shelf, uh, unrefrigerated. But when it's open, uh, refrigerated. Talk to us about shelf life, open, unopened. How do we think about like keeping a bottle around the house?
0: Yeah. So first off, I would always encourage you to store your sake in the refrigerator. Um, sake, much like any other alcohol, is going to thrive. Much like any other brewed alcohol, I should say, is going to thrive well in a cold, dark place. Now, it doesn't have to be a 30-degree cold, dark place. It could easily be something around, you know, 50, 55 degrees. I keep most of my sake in a wine fridge uh, that sits around, I believe, 46 degrees. And it's somewhere where there's not a lot of natural light hitting that those bottles. Um, you can store sake in a fridge for quite some time. Typically, I, I hear a lot of people say that you want to get to it... You know, at most a year from when the brewery released it, and you'll see uh, if you look at bottles, you'll often see a date uh, down at the bottom there. So It looks like this
1: guy we got an April of twenty two. Yeah. Uh, bottle right here. Yep. Yeah,
0: so we're getting to it kind of towards that end of that year mark. But um, but we're gonna
1: finish it right now. So yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fine,
0: yeah, fine, yeah. fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, um, but it's still very good that way. Um, in that way, sake is very sturdy. Now there are some. Uh, there's a there's a brewery called uh, Tamagawa run by a guy named Philip Harper. He was the first non-Japanese brewmaster in Japan, to my knowledge. Don't quote me on that, Uh, or do, and then maybe be wrong. Um, But he makes sake that people refer to as indestructible. And what he means by that is that you can sit it on your countertop, you can pop it open, you can do whatever you want to it, and it's still going to be good, if not better, than when he released it. There are some brands out there, some styles that I would certainly agree with for that. I've had some of his stuff that's been open for a year and a half, and it's great. Uh, Bo Timkin, the owner of True Sake, uh, aged a bottle of his sake in a tree in the backyard of the store for a year and a half. Uh, so to give you an idea, there's you know kind of a crazy spectrum. But for most of us, when you buy that bottle of sake, uh, pop it in your fridge or keep it somewhere cool and dark. And then when you open it, keep it in your fridge, and you've got somewhere between... If it's a super fruity kind of like daiginjo, that super light, fruity, floral style, I'd say try to get to it within two weeks. If you've got something like what we're drinking today, this tokobetsu honjozo, uh, I'd say we probably have about a month or so before some of the more kind of lovely melon and apple notes we're tasting are going to go away. So we do have some time. There are also sakes that are a little bit more sturdy, a little bit more umami-driven that do extremely well open and just kind of hanging out. Got it. Uh, I've got some bottles that I opened and didn't really love. And then a week or two later, I went back to them. And just due to the oxidization that happened to them, I found them to be a little bit lighter, a little bit more lovely, and much more drinkable. So sake is a sturdy beverage. Unlike wine where you're going to pop that bottle and you've got to get to it in the next day or two, you can pop a bottle of sake and you've got about a month, I would say, is a safe kind of generalization.
1: You know, I'm not um, the world's foremost wine expert, but I feel like for something that is has these kind of fruity notes, definitely like a, a minerality or saltiness, I feel like if you handed someone a glass of this in a wine glass and posited it as some kind I I think they people would go for it in terms of that all that to say for people out there remembering some nightmare unpleasant like hot sake stupid sake bomb whatever experience um, this very much just reminds me of the experience I had in Colorado that this is extremely pleasant the bottle is uh, not surprisingly uh, beautiful to look at from right here and so um, yeah in terms of you know, feeling like you're, you're in a world where, um, okay, we're going to do so- – because like, we've all been there, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. Like, you're, like, girding yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, and then you st- – because, like, okay, we're going gonna, we're gonna hit, to hit this hard party thing or whatever. Very delicate, very easy to drink. Um, so I think it's the kind of thing that with the right product in hand, you're going to be like, oh, this is actually really lovely.
0: So. I joke a lot, too. It's like uh, imagine that you sat down at a restaurant and you ordered yourself a Bush – and then a uh, a Pinot Noir, and you slammed the Pinot Noir, and then you took a sip of the bush. Like, people are going to look at you like you're out of your damn mind. And that's kind of how I look at people that want to do sake bombs, which, you know, there's a place for them. I'm not saying that they don't belong in the world. I think it's a fun way to, you know, smash some sake. And if that's what you got to do, it's what you got to do. Right. But, you know, it, it's like doing a shot of wine. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you really start to understand what you're doing.
1: And I think it's it it really reflects two things, I think, for the most part, right? Like it's not yeah, this is not an anti sake bomb thing. It's more like uh one, shooting almost anything to some degree is not necessarily always comfortable. And second, what we're shooting is often uh lower quality. Not always, right? Like you do a tequila shot of Cuervo, God forbid, like the gold shit or whatever. But anyway, so you're doing it. You're doing it, a a shot of, God, somebody bought me a crappy shot of tequila a couple weeks ago. Shout out to the Lazy Tiger team, and it was it was just it was hellacious. We were, anyways. But you shoot like this really bad stuff, and then you give people these wonderful sipping tequilas and mezcals. and it's like, oh my, like why would you shoot this? Because like I want to savor this, and so. Yeah, anyways, that's my diatribe on sake bombs. Do them, but know that most of the time what you're probably doing them with is not good stuff and is probably not implanting good memories for what this category could be going forward.
0: Also, I don't think I've ever gotten done with a sake bomb or anything of that sort and been like, man, that was delicious.
1: (laughs) Or, or, Or also... That was a great idea. Right. And, you know, and maybe it's furthering on a mood you're in, whatever.
0: But uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It can be fun, but you're not having fun because of what you're drinking. You're having fun because there's a bunch of other idiots doing it with you, probably. That's right. Which is not to say that you're an idiot, just that we're all idiots in some ways.
1: Yeah, we're all best when we're surrounded by the idiots we love. Yeah. But, uh,
0: yeah. Um, so. But diving back to what you asked me before we kind of did the, the little uh, pouring and all that. So when we're talking about sake certifications, we're really looking at kind of an interesting setup where, unlike wine, where you've got the Court of Master Psalms or the set, which is the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, um, you've got a bunch of different boards. And, you know, in beer, you've got Cicerone and, and things like that. With sake, there's not kind of a centrally like everyone knows that this is the authority that you go to. Uh, the W-Set does have two different levels. They've got a level one and a level three. Uh, I think of those kind of when you're looking at the equivalence to a wine sommelier, you've got your level one, which is your level one wine somm, and your level three, which is your level two wine som. I am certified through the uh, Sake Sommelier Association out of the UK. They are the oldest international body doing education on sake. It's a little bit less technically focused and a little bit more focused on the practical service aspects of it. Obviously, we know the technical stuff, we go through all of that, but when we're talking about what it means to be a certified sake sommelier. We are talking about how do we talk about it to guests? How do we introduce people to this category and get people drinking them and excited about it and kind of making it approachable and a little bit more fun. I find that when you bombard people with the technical facts, you're kind of losing them immediately. You can watch people gloss over. Sometimes I'll do it when I'm doing a lecture on sake, just to get a little kick out of it for myself. And i be like, just kidding, let's back up. Um, there's also uh, programs out there, such as the, uh, the Japanese Sake uh, Diploma, so the JSA Diploma. Uh, there is the uh, Kiki Zakeshi, which is the uh, Japan Sommelier Accreditation. Uh, and then I have taken uh, an additional course called the Sake Scholar course by a gentleman named Michael Tremblay. Uh, and I hope I'm not saying that wrong. I apologize if I am, Michael, if you're listening to this. Um, but Michael is a sake samurai, which is not just something that people call themselves. That is a actual thing that the, uh, the brewing kind of governing body in Japan awards to people who do excellent work in kind of bringing forward the industry as a whole. Uh, it's an incredibly prestigious award. There's only seven or so awarded a year. And Americans typically are pretty low on the list of people that get tapped for that. Um. So Michael, and he's Canadian, but Canadians in America, it's irrelevant. Uh, Michael Tremblay is a sake samurai, and he's put together a course that studies the idea of regionality. And you could say terroir, but it is an interesting course in that you kind of land in this, is it real, is it not real in sake? And I think the best answer is, how much do you want to fight? Because... Some people will argue, well, it can't be real. Some people will argue that it absolutely is. But what his course really is looking at is why is a Kanagawa sake going to have certain notes that are common throughout that entire region, whereas a Niigata sake is known for this particular thing? Or if we're looking at uh, Kochi, why is the Kochi sake a specific way? And so he's looking at things like minerality, water, and I would equate this to being about a level three wine som, kind of your advanced psalm deal. Uh, truly an incredible class. It is also one of those things where you have to have one of the other certifications to take it and really dive in. And then you've got gentlemen like uh, John Gauntner in Japan who is teaching his uh, sake professional courses. He's got multiple levels, certified sake professional, advanced sake professional. I don't know if he has a master one, but John Gauntner is kind of... The English voice in sake. He's been doing it longer than everybody else. He knows more people in the industry than anybody else, and he's seen more of it than anybody else, as far as the English speaking industry is concerned. So, getting to his take his classes uh, are kind of like a you know a, a big gold star on your resume. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So, with all of that, obviously, now you've turned around and created a uh, high water sake. So. Uh, how do you for you know the people that you're often working with and coaching through on these things like that you know we've obviously just spent you know a nice little bit of time kind of talking this but what might someone expect if they're coming to a course that you are you're kind of rolling out for them what might they get into
0: yeah so I kind of I have a couple different levels of of coursing that I go through I've got kind of a very casual setup which I've done in people's homes where it's just kind of hey, we're going to get together, we're going to taste through a bunch of stuff. I'll tell you a little bit about what this is and kind of run you through kind of the basics of it. We'll talk a little bit about the history and then we'll kind of drink a bunch of sake and have a good time. And it's pretty casual and laid back. Uh, I'm not too focused on making sure that they've got like, you know, the schoolboy details down. Um, And then it goes all the way up to the certification level courses where it is still meant to be fun. You know, I don't ever want anybody to come into, into my classroom or into any lecture or anything that I'm doing really, and be like, man, that was kind of boring. I want it to be fun. I want it to be engaging. But when you're talking a certification, it is a certification and there is, um, you know, a certain amount of retention that we expect. So I always try to cater what I'm teaching to the particular class. If it is something super casual, I'll get the details out. If people have questions, I'm happy to dive deeper into any particular thing. But I'm, I'm typically kind of doing a, a quick service overview because, again, most of the times you're you're teaching people something new. And if you try to dive all the way to the bottom of the pool, they're going to get lost and they're going to forget some stuff or they're going to think that certain, some things are more important than they necessarily need to be. However, if we're teaching somebody to be a sommelier, if you're getting to that certified sommelier level... We do need to kind of make sure that we've got it locked down, and that you do understand the difference between things like sukihaze and sohaze, and what that even means. Don't we all? Yeah, absolutely. And like you know, like it. So there's there's little details that I will often jokingly tell to my sommeliers, like this is going to be something that you're never going to say out loud when talking to a client or a guest, but you have to know them because if you don't know it, you can't talk about it if it does come up. So that's kind of the, where I think of it on the scale. There's a super casual where I want you to be uh, comfortable walking into a, a liquor store and looking at a bottle and being like, oh, I, I know the words on there. I know what a Tokubetsu and Mai is. Um, but then I also want people to be at the point where they could have this level of conversation where you're kind of purposefully having to hold yourself back from talking about more things because it's, as we've done several times already – just leads into total rabbit trails that are irrelevant to the original question.
1: But so often they're they're where the real meat of everything is. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, when we kind of were like scheduling this, uh, so first we were talking. Uh, we'll have a link to this, but coincidentally to like today's conversation. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, this probably won't come out until early April. So hello, April. But uh, anyways. I feel like I remember. Uh, so, yes, yesterday uh, the New York Times ran a uh, a piece on the emerging sake boom. And uh, uh, sorry to say this, New York and California, a uh, tough luck. But apparently, the uh, future of um, uh, American sake production is going to be here in the Midwest, uh, in the state of, in in the state of Arkansas, which grows most of our rice. Um, but in terms of things coming up, do I remember Andrew that there was some kind of local, regional, or national sake related event or competition you were talking about at all what what, do you remember what what you were what i'm referencing
0: yeah so super local to st louis there's going to be a sake cocktail competition held at duckbill uh duckbill's this great little bar uh run by meredith berry down in the grove neighborhood of st louis uh if you're ever in town or you live in town please go it's fantastic. But they, from what I understand, I'm I'm not involved in the planning of it, so I can't speak too much to the details. But in partnership with the Japanese American Society here in St. Louis, they are doing a cocktail competition uh, where sake has to be the main base ingredient. So that's coming up soon. Another thing to look at is that uh, in spring, we have the uh, sake and sakura event at the garden. Again, something I'm not involved with, unfortunately. Not yet anyways. I'm going to try to change that. But, um, that is a event that they actually do in Japan as well, where once the cherry blossoms start to bloom, uh, the idea is that you go out, you have a little picnic, you eat a little something, something, you drink a little sake and you stare at the pretty flowers, which sounds like a great time to me. Uh, and then other things that are coming up, uh, I am working with, uh, local bars to try to get kind of tap takeovers going on. Um, I'm, uh looking to get some sake on the menu, I believe Sippy, uh, which is a natural wine bar here in St. Louis. I believe that they are about to start doing sake by the glass on the menu. And then, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we'll get, some, uh, get an event rolling with them soon. And then uh, around the country, uh, look out for it, especially if you're in New York or in California or in Miami. Um, in October, on October 1st, There is a national or not a national global sake day. Uh, Sake is historically brewed in the winter season. You know, refrigeration is super important for any brewing. And when you don't have modern refrigeration, which we didn't until very recently, uh, winter was your refrigeration. So the brewing season for sake starts in October. So the idea nowadays is that we have a big celebration right at the beginning of the brewing season before the brewers are all exhausted and don't want to talk to us. Uh, We get to taste a bunch of stuff and have a lot of fun. There's San Francisco. There was one uh, in uh, Asheville, North Carolina last year at the Ben's Tune-Up, which is a sake brewery in North Carolina. And then, of course, there's a massive one in New York every year. I I think up in Toronto, they do one as well. Don't quote me on that one, though. But yeah, so there's tons of events all year round. Uh, If you have the luxury of living near a sake-specific store, typically they're doing some kind of tasting right now. I almost guarantee you if you live near a sake store, they're doing a tasting. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's well worth looking into that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and also in your local market for the more daring, uh, I remember seeing um, Andrew in a piece talk about, um, you know, clearly, again, you go to your... Total Wines, preferably your local liquor stores, uh, but uh, here in the St. Louis Market, I guess out in kind of the Manchester-Ellisville area, there's the what they call the Pan-Asia Market, and there, if you're ever looking to do your broader survey course at some of your international grocers in particular, you're probably also going to find like a huge fleet of stuff just because much of the clientele might be more seeking that as opposed to at uh, your other liquor store where it's more incidental for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, too, when we're talking about the retail experience, you know, you really nailed it when you said if you're feeling a little bit braver going out to those Asian grocery stores, because uh, I love Pan Asia. It's probably my favorite local Asian market. But when you look at the sake selection, you've got kind of this pitfall of styles that hold up really well on refrigerated on a shelf sitting right next to a fully unpasteurized sake, which... Maybe that's good or maybe it's right, bad.
1: Right. And unfortunately, either due to language in some cases or lack of knowledge, people in the store might not even be able to tell you. And so, um, yeah.
0: almost certainly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, uh, but here's to the brave people willing to, to, to do that. Um, Andrew, is there, we've certainly covered a lot of ground. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted, had hoped to? Covered all today so far.
0: I mean, like you said, I think we've kind of covered a lot of ground. We haven't talked about a lot of the specifics, but I would encourage you. There's fantastically written articles that can do a much better job, unless we were to sit here for another hour talking about kind of what it is and how it's made and all that stuff. But really, don't be afraid to explore, to splash out. And another thing that I would encourage any listener that is curious about it to do. Think beyond Japanese or Asian food when you're thinking sake. One of my favorite pairings is to take a sake and pair it with a tomato heavy dish because tomato has a ton of umami in there, which complements sake very well. So splash out, you know, think, think broad, think wide spectrum when you're thinking, what should I be eating with this? Um, there's great sake for you know your formal dinner where you've got your friends over and everybody's dressed up in a suit and you're making steaks uh there's great sakes for your barbecues for your chinese food takeout you really you can't go wrong there's something out there that will pair with anything that you're going to eat
1: and i I do like that too because you know it's so often you know wine or other things are paired with dinner and to, to this idea of so we will have to um Without belaboring it now, we'll see if as we get closer to publication, we can um, either get some recommendations or if there's a site you can point people to that could also have any of that. But um, yeah, I, I, I like that idea of starting out that from a, a culinary standpoint too. So
0: Yeah, and I'll say this too. If you're ever standing in a store and you're staring at a wall of sake and you're like, I have no idea. You're more than welcome to go to my Instagram page and just, you know, the DMs are open. Shoot me a picture of that shelf. And assuming I'm not crazy busy, I am happy to tell you what I think would be good off of that shelf.
1: And is that lamb dog? Is that right?
0: Like Snoop Dogg. Yeah. yeah. Lamb Dog, D-O-D-O-Double-G. Okay, man. Uh, we, that, I, or you can go to High Water Sake, at High Water Sake on Instagram.
1: I didn't know I had the second D-O-Double-G. The second D-O-Double-G. Okay. That's right. He's here in the building. Um. Andrew, this is this is great. Uh, this is thank you for this. So much fun, um, and the sake is delightful. So thank you.
0: I'm glad you're enjoying it. Cool. All right, we're out of here. Yep. Kanpai.
1: Kanpai. Hey everybody! Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at DecodingCocktails.com/podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter, or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon and happy cocktail.